0: I'm going to ask if Don would come up and uh, that you guys uh, would hopefully have a bunch of questions. We'll run some mics around, so um, we haven't got any pre-questions, so that will mean that you'll have to be ready to ask right now to go for it, so get your brains thinking, and as soon as we have uh, Don up here, that'd be great. Can we welcome Don back up? Okay, so where are we going to start? Who's got a hand and a question? because that combination will be really helpful. Yep. If you can tell us who you are and give us your question. Um, my name's Joel Allen. Don, I'm just wondering um, anything that particularly stands out or that you remember from your father um, being a church planner, particular things you remember about how he went about that that, um, that really have stuck with you throughout your life?
1: Well, I relate some of that in a in little book I wrote called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. So some of the most important lessons you can read there. But you have to face the fact that um, church planting looks different in different cultures. Uh, I've been involved in three plants, uh, one of them in French, uh, two of them in English, in very different settings. The one in French took place in French Canada at a time when there was massive opposition from Catholicism. And... um, and overt persecution, I don't know what else to call it. I mean, Baptist ministers spent time in jail between 50 and 52, about a total of about eight years. And when I went to, do, to plant a church in, with another chap in 1969 in a region of Montreal called Ahuntsic, there were about 125,000 people in that area. We didn't know one evangelical, and we didn't know one person who spoke English. I visited 3,000 homes before I got a, my first Bible study going. And that's not the way I'd recommend that you do it today here. But, you uh, see, Dad faced similar challenges. And, and, and I l- learned that from my father. And, and what that meant was that he, he, he set aside part of every day going door to door, going door getting doors slammed in his face and become, being called a Modi Protestant and all that. It, that was just part of the way you did it. And then, and, I mean, how, how else did you, did, did you start? The animus was, was fantastic. And you you hoped you wouldn't get beaten up, and you hoped the police didn't stop you. And um, so, in that kind of context, you you, you learn things like perseverance. Um, you, you, you you learn to press on, and you you learn to be grateful for what you do have, the the handful of folk that were already there, but you you. Um, there's not going to be a lesson that tumbles out of that, do the following 14-point program, and boy, it'll really take off, you know? Now, in fact, in Quebec, then it finally did take off in 1972. By that time, Dad was already 61. And the leadership was already being passed on to other people. So that by the time Quebec exploded in conversions, um, Dad was was one of the senior saints, but not, not quite so much on the front line anymore. So... Um, The kinds of lessons I learned from him had much more to do with integrity and faithfulness and perseverance and so on, rather than concrete things um, about how to plant a church. The other churches that I planted weren't at all like that. They were were just hugely different because the the culture and the context were so different.
0: Uh, Don, you said 3,000 homes. That's an epic number. Uh, was it Sunday afternoon? Was it five days a week? How on earth did you do that? And how did you make sure that people were home when you're knocking on doors? Because I could probably knock on 3,000 doors, but I'd found a lot of people not home during the week. Don't forget,
1: this was late 60s when there weren't so many women uh, working outside the home. Sure. And, but it was, it was uh, five or six full afternoons a week, some mornings, and many evenings.
0: That's fantastically encouraging and challenging at the same time.
1: For three and a half months.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, Some other questions? Yep. Your name and your question, please. Uh, Yeah, my name's Luke. Um, My question relates to uh, statements of faith, theological statements of faith, that sort of stuff. So um, if that's not kind of given to you on a platter when you're in a church plant would you go down the line of taking kind of a historic confession where you might agree with 90% of it, but 10% of it you're like, well, we don't necessarily go with all of it, but overall we like the vibe. Or would you uh, write your own statement of faith or you know, borrow someone else's and tweak that sort of stuff, go down that line that you're more 100% on board with? Um, which, which, which way would you go? And I'm particularly mindful of the thoughts you were making the other night about saying, look, if you've got holes in your theological statement or direction as a church that, that, that can be an invite for someone else to jump into that hole. So what would you recommend?
1: I would never recommend adopting as your statement of faith something to which um, you take partial exception from the get-go for the very simple reason that down the road you will have no clout at all when people take exception to other things in the statement of faith. The statement of faith is no longer a defining statement for you. So whether you write your own, which for most people I would not recommend, or you find one that you can align with, or you find one that you are allowed to tweak without breaking copyright laws, um, whatever it is, I would say the statement of faith you adopt from the beginning needs to be one that you will stick with because... um, uh, if right from the beginning people see your statement of faith, and they say, do you really believe that? Well, no, not really. That, that part we don't really uh, accept. Then a little farther down the road, somebody says, you know, I really don't like that part. What are you going to say? It's our statement of faith. You have to believe it? No, no. The issue of statement of faith is, is bound up with integrity. Now, uh, in recent years, we've had a lot of people write to us at the Gospel Coalition who, who are planting independent churches, and want to adopt the statement of faith and the theological vision of um, the coalition. uh, Do we mind? Obviously not. But what I also recommend is that they take it and then tweak it a a little bit more firmly. So our our statement of faith, because it's a coalition, it's not a denominational statement, because it's a coalition, allows both Paedo-Baptists and and, and Credo-Baptists. Yeah, so I, I... at local church governments, I prefer that to be nailed down one way or the other. I, th- I think it'll save you a lot of pain later. And so I tell them they have every right to do that. Go ahead. God bless them. We're, 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 we want the thing to be useful, not not, not to hurt people. But, in, in fact, entire denominations have in recent years adopted that statement of faith. There's something to be said for taking something historic, Heidelberg or something, that people have worked on for a long time with many minds on it, thinking through uh, rather than something you sort of draft on a Sunday afternoon yourself, no matter how clever you are. Yep, yeah,
0: that's good. Um, Don, can you
1: pinpoint the human reasons for the
0: the change that happened in Quebec? And you're saying it was really resistant, then there was an opening. Can you, can you think of human factors that were involved? Many,
1: in many. Uh, but I'd, I'd almost have to give you a history lesson. Um, how much time do we have here?
0: Uh, we're going to 12, I think.
1: All of the reasons at the human level that I think are analyzable after the fact were not things that we had control of. So if I tell them to you, you can't say, "Whoo, boy, let me just bring about the same reasons here and we'll get the same result. So I can tell you what God used and it will then maybe encourage you to trust God to do strange things and so on, so on, so on. But you must not think that what I'm about to tell you... Um, is immediately applicable in Dubbo or wherever. I mean, life isn't like that. Um, Moreover, none of us in French Canada at the time foresaw what was happening. When it began to happen quickly, it caught most of us by surprise. Um, Let me mention just two or three things, but they're grounded in the history of French Canada. Canada was settled by the French before the English took it over. So Quebec, initially called Lower Canada, um, had thousands, then tens of thousands of French Canadians before General Wolfe beat General Montcalm at the Plains of Abraham outside Quebec City in 1759. And then by the Treaty of Versailles, uh, which ended the war between France and and, and England, England took over Canada um, in 1763. But in fact, the English were smart enough to realize that there's no way they could govern this thing without allowing almost all of the customs and the language and the religion and everything else to, 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 uh, to, to, to be itself. They, 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 they governed as the British usually did. They didn't always do, but as they usually did with a pretty light touch. But eventually, this also meant that more and more English people came. They came, first of all, to Ontario, which was then Upper Canada. And eventually, in 1867, Canada was formed as a nation under what came, what's called the British North America Act. But to get the whole country, right across the country, from the East Coast to the West Coast, to actually sign on to a document that made one nation, they had to allow a lot of extra special privileges and freedoms and so on on the French side, or Quebec was not going to join in. So this meant, amongst other things, that each province entirely controlled its education patterns, for example. And each each province controlled almost all the laws to do with social civic matters, the English heritage. And so was Napoleonic Code mo- modified by various things in, in French Canada. Federal uh, criminal law w- w- was handled at the federal level. That's the way it was at the time. It's tweaked since then. But this meant that in Quebec where the Catholic Church held absolute sway, the Catholic Church controlled education. Absolutely. And, and, and the, the, the few Protestant church, uh, schools, there were either Catholic schools or Protestant schools. There, there was no just school school or secular school or state school. It was, in Quebec, it was Protestant or it was Catholic. If it was Protestant, by law, it had to be English. So when we started planting churches in French Canada if people became Christians in an evangelical sense, their kids could no longer go to the Catholic school, which was French. They had to go to an English school, which meant the next generation was always Anglicized and went to an English church. So we were perennially in a first-generation mode, and many families didn't want to become Christian. You you couldn't start a private school. There was no homeschooling. It was the Catholic church and French or Protestant and English. That was it, full stop. And with that came persecution and laws, other laws, I and mean, it was it was really quite complicated. But it was a whole social structure that was limiting you if you were not Catholic, and there were a lot of other factors as well. But just mention that one. What happened in seventeen in 1963? The premier of the province was called um, uh, Jean Lesage, and he passed what came to be called Bill 63. His government fell because of it, but he did pass it, which in fact abolished that system, and for the first time, it was possible for uh, French-speaking Christians to set up a French school, um, which was revolutionary, do, do, do you see. And then there were, uh, there, there, were, there were a lot of other factors, just as a lot of Western countries had their sort of dirty 60s and Marxist revolution and in North America, hate, asbury and the drug culture and all of that. So Quebec went through its... It's, it's overthrow the authorities thing. We had the Front de Libération Québécoise, the Quebec Liberation Front, with throwing bombs, and they, they murdered a couple of ministers. I don't mean ministers of religion, ministers of state. And, and, and eventually, Pierre Trudeau who was the prime minister of Canada, slammed down martial law. And in all of that ferment, everybody was rebelling against the Catholic Church as well. And within that framework, then God raised up two or three remarkable men, one called Jacques Alexanian, who was Armenian by background, not Armenian, Armenian by background, and did his theology at Wheaton College and at Vaux-sur-Seine in Paris, in Paris. And um, he was just one aggressive dude when it came to evangelism and church planting. And, and he, he, he just saw hundreds and then eventually thousands of young men in the colleges and so on genuinely converted. And it just transformed everything. Then we were panting, trying to think through what we were going to do about theological education and all of that. And that was the beginning of what came to be called Sembec, Seminary Baptiste Evangelique du Québec, uh, Evangelical Baptist Seminary of Québec, and so on. So um, the, all those social pressures um, and, and the changes and the ferment and the unrest and the rising secularism and the hatred of the Catholic Church, and all, all, it, it, it all festered and, and then made everything open to everybody. So it was a time when not only did evangelicals grow, but Jehovah's Witnesses grew, Mormons grew, uh, Pentecostals, there weren't any Pentecostals before. There weren't any. They grew. I mean, everybody was growing, do you see? In 72, there were only two evangelical groups, the Brethren and the Baptists. That was it, full stop, period. And suddenly everything grew, weeds and and flowers and everything. (laughs) Um, So it was a very exciting but extremely dangerous time. And you can go back and look at it, but it's, it's not easily transportable to hear. It's a little more transportable to Ireland. But that's another story.
0: Uh, just, you guys, if you were there two years ago at In the in Canberra, Don did a whole uh, lecture on this for us, uh, an hour or so. Uh, we just dragged it off the website. What is it, Mark? Cash, multiply 12. And you can listen to the whole lecture if you want. The link is there.
1: Thanks. <laughs> You're not allowed to say anything these days unless it's recorded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, next question. I'll come over this side somewhere, maybe. All right, here, here, I saw it. Yep. I'll come back, guys. Um, is there a danger that um, planning a new church in close proximity with many other existing churches um, creates a boundary-bounded set in that you are giving people the option to pick and choose which church they go to and adding to the consumeristic nation, uh, nature of Western culture?
1: Well, local church memberships, if, especially if they're independent churches, if, if they belong to a believer's tradition, uh, really are boundary bounded sets there 's nothing wrong with that. Um, the broader in other words, you can ask your question without talking about set theory. Um, obviously, there are some people who are so protective of their turf that if you plant a church on their turf, then they are suspicious, resentful, and so on, and that attitude is worse in those denominations which think in terms of parish which is why, let's, let's be quite frank, it's hard to plant an Anglican church that's genuinely evangelical in Brisbane. I mean, it, 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 that, that's why you end up well, with well-trained Anglicans planting, planting independent evangelical churches. It's just the way it is. And what I would say is, um, in terms of strategy, um, I'll stick it in my terms, um, It's probably not, on the whole, the wisest, shrewdest strategy to plant a brand-new church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is the buckle on the Bible belt. (laughs) You you know? Try New York City, for goodness sake, or Seattle. Um, So, similarly, if you find a place where there are already a lot of really good, strong Bible-teaching churches around, well, if it's a big metropolitan area, there are lots of lost people in, in any case. But surely it's wiser to 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 look on the whole at areas that have very little gospel and 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 think through those areas a little more immediately moreover there will be some pastors there will be some preachers there will be some church leaders who will always be grateful if somebody else is coming into their turf to plant churches because they have a passion for the gospel not all ministers of the gospel are turf protectors they'll join you they'll pray for you they'll help you and you make sure that when your time comes to lead a church that's a little bigger, you make sure you act like that too. Um, the gospel first. And so if some people's, feel, some people's feelings are hurt because there are a lot of churches in the area, but not many of them really do preach the gospel very faithfully, or there are some gospel churches, but it's a whopping big area with uh, half a million people or something like that. Well, I'm sorry their feelings are hurt, but the gospel really does come first. You, know? you, 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 you take your lumps and, and, and press on. So, th- again, it's, it's largely a matter of prudential wisdom where you draw the lines on things like that.
0: Don, my name's Steve. My question is, uh, is you were speaking last night about complementarianism and the need to plant a stake in the ground over that one uh, because of the day that we live in. Uh, I'm just wondering, are there other issues that because of the day we live in, um, you'd encourage us to plant a stake in the ground over? And then secondly... How, what sort of advice could you give us in terms of determining uh, how we differentiate between perhaps primary issues and secondary issues um, in the mix of that? Because I think,
1: certainly I, I'm aware that there are, people have different views on how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Well, that's really what part of the two evening theological planks were about. I mean, if, if I answered the second part of your question... I, I would be repeating most of what i said the last couple of nights. If you go back and listen to those tapes or somebody's got notes, you, you'll see that I've already talked about what makes the difference between primary and secondary, um, how, integra- how intimately it's integrated with the, the very structure of the gospel and how, how much it's prophetic in your own particular cultural time and so on. I mean, we already talked about those kinds of things. There's an element of prudential wisdom that's involved in those, those things, but nevertheless, part of it is finally tied down to what Scripture says. And uh, so, so if you ask what other issues there are, there are lots and lots and lots of them, but they may not be big issues in, in, in a particular time or place. For example, I would be very unhappy trying to plant a, a, a ch- churches with someone in an association who is, um, who is bought into the openness of God uh, theology, um, which, which really says that God cannot know um, the outcome uh, with certainty of the decisions of free human beings, whereas I want to affirm as powerfully and as joyfully as I can that God knows all things—past, present, future, and conditional—it's bound up with a right and faithful understanding of His omniscience. So, um, on the other hand, whether I would put that into a statement of faith at this or, or into into your core documents of of, of Geneva at this point or not—if um, nobody's around actually. Uh, going in that direction. It's, 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 it's not a big one but it's one where I would put a stake in the ground and I would rather have that in my statement of faith because it is around in evangelicalism today and it could pop up here in some nasty way. So um, on the other hand, it is easier to, to, to handle something like that in a thoughtful, balanced, not too short, not too long statement of faith that's joyful rather than in a miserable way. So in, to refer to the coalition again we, we don't pronounce an anathema on everybody who, who holds um, uh, openness theology rather we joyfully affirm that God knows all things past, present, future and conditional well that excludes them without consigning them to uh, the bottom pit and um, so so becoming theologically alert and aware as to trends and movements to, to my mind I, I would want to be pretty careful on the doctrine of justification just because it's a test doctrine of a lot of other things. And um, so I'd want that one pretty carefully worded, Um, and so on. But but ideally, those things are all part of merely a mature statement of faith in any case. Uh, uh, Transparently, in terms of social issues, um, uh, homosexuality is one that you cannot duck. It is one you cannot duck today. And how to handle that one with grace and integrity and humility, but firmness and courage is going to be a a challenge before we're done there will be people in western countries uh, who will go to jail over this one yeah Um, my name is john and i'm thinking don you get to move around the world a bit more than the rest of us and see what's going on and probably become aware of trends and movements and things Uh, wondering can you tell us what can you see stuff that might come our way over the next couple of years that'd be good for us as church planners to be aware of Um, uh, America becomes the source of some good things and a lot of bad things just because it is so powerful in the digital world. Um, But America is an an astonishingly diverse reflector of a whole lot of other things. Um, uh, So, for example, as we have uh, rising immigrants from Asia, so in America there are rising voices from Buddhism and from, to some extent, Confucianism and to some extent Taoism, uh, quite a lot of Hinduism and so on. That, that is increasing in our mix and it is likely to play out here where you've got similar voices from immigrants. And, and so um, uh, those things in turn play into thinking through questions of pluralism and the nature of tolerance and intolerance. Now, I wrote a book on, I hate hate to start sounding like a peddler again, Uh, I have a book that came out this year on tolerance and intolerance. I think that's going to become one of the big issues of our age. Um, Because the nature of tolerance has changed in the last 20 years. And the new tolerance is, in my judgment, intrinsically intolerant. The standard rebuttal against many of the positions that we take that affect the social sphere is not, you're wrong, it's, you're intolerant. So you've, you've been written off. It's, it's what Tim likes to call a defeater belief. Um, a defeater belief is a belief which you hold. It may or may not be true. It doesn't matter. If you hold it, it defeats somebody else's belief. So, for example, if you really believe that there is no one religion that has the exclusive way to God, and then someone comes along and starts preaching Jesus is the only way, you, you can listen to him and say well that 's very interesting that 's very interesting that's very, but of course it isn 't true because there is no one way to god that 's your defeater belief you 've defeated him before before you 've actually engaged and 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 this has all kinds of effects on morality and and um, and how to dialogue and, and and so on. I was recently on the Berkeley campus doing uh, some evangelism and my, the, my my title was the intolerance of tolerance and and uh, and then it led right to the gospel and so on. And the Q&A was full of life and fire. It was great fun um, b- because, b- because th- this new tolerance you can show to be intrinsically intolerant. And, and we're going to have to think through that one, how, how to uh, come out from the merely being dismissed um, because, of, uh, b- because of the force of this cultural wave that has defined tolerance differently. And now, that's only one example, but I think it's a biggie. Um,
0: but I did write a book on it. Uh, taste, uh, hi, Dr. Carson. I want to bring some respect into the room, so I just dressed you that way. Mm. <laughs> you just ruined the respect by drawing attention to it.
1: <laughs>
0: I received my honor. <laughs> no, no, no no, um, no,
1: no, no. I mean, I mean that, that's part of cultural diversity, too. In, in Australia, is. every 10-year-old refers to me as Don, Dong. Yeah. And if, if, if I'm in China, uh, even people who are older than I am, you know, refer to me as the Reverend Doctor Professor.
0: You yeah. know, and, and so as a Chinese, I felt obliged to <laughs> fit into compromise, that do it halfway. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right. um, So the, the question is, when you were part of planting the church, um, what kind of impact did I have on your children that you're aware of? Have they said anything to you then or now? And what were some things that you would have done differently? For all three of them, I was single.
1: Oh. No, that's not true. I was single for for two of them. The third one, I was married, but we had no children. I right. can't you. answer that question.
0: <laughs> question. Okay, uh, we'll come over this side over here. Yep, Don. Um, just a question about last night on complementarianism, and wondering if you could comment on uh, the NIV two thousand eleven's translation of to teach or to assume authority, and wondering if you could uh, speak about the relationship between teaching and authority, particularly a question about your definition about the recognised. Uh, church authority. authority, because um, what I've heard it taught in the past is that teaching creates its own authority, and so even if you have someone, a female up, uh, teaching who isn't the recognized church authority, just the act in opening the scriptures on a Sunday creates its own authority. So wondering if you could spell out some of that.
1: Well, there are two or three questions bound up with that question. Uh, there are some people who exegete that text to mean there, there are two restrictions. One is teaching, one is authority. That's possible. But the way I worded it was in the lesser way of taking it, namely a teaching authority, because I agree with you that the primary authority that elders exercise in the church is through the authority of the word. So it is a teaching authority that is at the center of it. It's not an authority that comes primarily out of an office, but out of the fact that that office is busy... <laughs> proclaiming the word of God. Um, then the second question is is bound up with the word assume. There are some people that think the 2011 NIV, because it uses the word assume, is uh, softening the text somewhat. Uh, so what is forbidden is not exercising authority. It's assuming authority in some sort of perverse way, taking over what shouldn't be taken over. Um, and I would argue that that is... Um, uh, entrusting uh, too much bias to the verb assume um, in a non-parliamentary system of uh, democracy like the U.S. Um, you, you vote uh, in your president in November, but he assumes authority on January the 20th. So um, to say that he assumes authority on January the 20th does not mean that uh, he is usurping authority. Or taking over an authority that's not his—it just means that he's exercising the authority—and—and and so assume itself does not say anything one way or the other about whether the authority has been assumed legally or illegally, um, nicely or unnicely or w- w- whatever. Um, it, it's just not a verb that you want to get all upset over. Um, it, it, it's, too much ink has been spilled on that one, trying to trying to force one decision or another does that help enough there are two or three other questions bound up with your question that's that's probably enough
0: okay um, probably got time for one more yep okay hi don um i'm pete i've just uh, got a question have you got um any tips for raising up working class people into uh into leadership of churches
1: my dear brother that's a great question um It's, it's a question where I'm probably not the best um, person to answer. Um, I can answer a fair bit at a sort of theological level, theoretical level, but if I, if, if, if I were to leave Trinity today and return to pastoral ministry, um, my own druthers, unless the Lord thrust me in some other direction, would be a church right next door to a big university because that's the world I, I know well and can speak to and interact with and challenge the socks off and, and, and so on. It's, it's my world. Um, but I'm well aware that in many, many Western countries, the least evangelized people are blue-collar workers and uh, people whose information is never from newsprint or, or anything like that. Uh, it's from TV or it's, it's from the web, and, and a fair bit of it's going to be porn in any case, and, and all the rest. I, I, I understand that. I, I understand that. Um, what I would say, however, is that when people are genuinely converted, uh, sometimes it makes late bloomers of them. Not always, but often enough. And the trick then is to find simple things to read that say profound things to get them reading again. I bet in this assembly there are some of you people who got converted out of a blue-collar background where you hadn't cracked a book for years, and then you became a Christian and you started reading again. And so it's is, it is just impossible to build up mature leaders who don't read because so much of, the, of leadership turns on reading the Bible for a start and then reading books about the Bible and then reading pastoral. I mean, you just have to do it. And so, so the, the trick really is to, to do, it line, do it with some, somebody for a start. There are two or three recent books that have been out on how to read the Bible with somebody else, and, and those are useful uh, to read the Bible with somebody else. Get them reading, uh, reading the Bible. And then, and then after that, um, reading other books that are written at a simple level, and 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 then a little club maybe of of, of reading where they're talking this about this with other people, and see who begins to grow and expand and, and and so on, and 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 then you you do you do find changes made. In fact, that was one of the things Dad faced and others faced in Quebec, in the years between. Um, oh, he started in the late thirties, but. From about 55 on to about 72, most of the converts, and there weren't many of them; there were only a handful, were 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 from the illiterate class. I don't, I can't recall in our church anyone that was university trained. And and it was just it was discouraging because you, you weren't building up leaders. It was difficult, and um, Dad was pretty good at the one-to-one level, but he he wasn't a strategic thinker. And So it, it was pretty hard, um, but one of the things that happened in this strange movement that started in '72, almost everybody was first, first or second or third year university, and boy, that just changed the dynamics overnight. Suddenly, we were clamoring for education and theological training and so on. So um, I, I don't—I'm probably not telling you anything you already haven't thought about, but um, it, it, it's worth—it's worth if there's some of you guys who are working in parishes or churches that are distinctively blue-collar and, and so on. It's worth talking among yourselves for a start. What are you using? What are you getting the guys to read? Um, it ought to sh- shape which which Bible translation you use. Uh, with all due respect, you don't start with the ESV. They, most of them can't read it. Um, I, I love the ESV for all kinds of reasons, and the people that are in charge of it are, are, are brothers of mine. Many of them preach only from it. God bless them. But... You know, I I work, likewise, all around the world where English is a second or third language. And where where English is a second or third language, nobody uses the ESP. They can't read it. And um, pool resources. Share them with one another. Fire off emails to people. Is there something at a light level on this subject? What is it? And then when you get the information, form a network within the network to to, to help um, one another if, if you're in that kind of parish. No, that's easy, I'm afraid.